0: Our scripture reading this morning from the prophecy of Jeremiah, chapter 17. Jeremiah, chapter 17, reading the first 14 verses. This is the inspired and infallible word of God. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron and with the point of a diamond. It is graven upon the table of their heart and upon the horns of your altars. whilst their children remember their altars and their groves by the green trees upon the high hills. O oh, my mountain in the field, I will give thy substance and all thy treasures to the spoil and thy high places for sin throughout all your borders. And thou even thyself shalt discontinue from thine inheritage, from the, the heritage that I gave thee. And I will cause thee to serve thine enemies in the land which thou knowest not. For ye have kindled a fire in mine anger, which shall burn forever. Thus saith the Lord, Cursed is the man that trusteth in man, that maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. He shall be like the heath in the desert, and shall not see when good cometh, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land, and not inhabited. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters, that spread out their roots by the river. Shall not see when the heat cometh, but her leaves shall be glean, green and shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. As the partridge sitteth on eggs and hatcheth them not, so he that getteth riches and not by right shall leave them in the midst of his days, and at the end shall be a fool. A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord the fountain of living waters. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved. For Thou art my praise. Amen. Our meditation today from Jeremiah chapter 17. But we're looking at this text in connection with Lord's Day 7, that you'll find on page 34, the back of your Psalter. Questions here that follow the identification of the Lord Jesus Christ as the only mediator between God and men. Question 20. Are all men, then, as they perished in Adam, saved by Christ? No. Only those who are engrafted into him and receive all his benefits by a true faith. What is true faith? True faith is not only a certain knowledge— whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word, but also an assured confidence, which the Holy Ghost works by the gospel in my heart, that not only to others, but to me also, remission of sin, everlasting righteousness and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merit. What is then necessary for a Christian to believe? All things promised us in the gospel, which are the articles of our Catholic, undoubted Christian faith, briefly teach us. And what follows then is the Apostles' Creed that will be expounded in the following questions and Lord's Day. But this Lord Day begins with a contrast between those who perish and those who are saved. And the distinguishing mark of those that are saved is what they have received by a true faith. And the focus of the following questions defines what that true faith is. And I trust that you notice that in every answer, that the focus is upon the object of that faith. Saving faith is saving faith because of its object. It is the object of faith that determines the value of faith. Saving faith is not saving just by virtue of its exercise, but I say it is the object of that faith that determines its saving value. And this faith is not make-believe. Catechism makes it clear, particularly in question 21, that this true faith is revealed. It is not that which is Invented by theologians. It is not that which is simply the product of human dogma. It is that which God has revealed. The first question, 20, emphasizes that this true faith is something that is received. And then in questions 22 and 23, we have this true faith defined. True faith. And the very terminology of true faith that the Catechism uses here assumes and presupposes that there is a false faith. The difference between false and true faith has eternal consequence, as the first question, question 20 made clear. Those that are in Adam will die, and those only that are united to Christ by that true faith, will live. And it is that contrast between true faith and that false faith that is the focus of our attention in Jeremiah chapter 17. And our focus of thought will be particularly in verses 5 and following. The contrast between saints and sinners is great. And the scripture so often employs those contrasts to underscore the immense differences between those that are saved and those that are lost. The way of the transgressor is hard. But the law of the wise is a fountain of life. The way of the wicked is darkness. But the saint and the path of the just is as a shining light. The sinner's dead in sin, but the believer is alive in Christ. The sinner's alienated from God, but the saint has been reconciled. The sinner is far off from God, but the saint has been brought near to God by the blood of Christ. The sinner starves, but the saint feasts upon the bread of life. The sinner's thirsty, but the saint has dipped into that fountain of life. And on it goes. But today I want to focus particularly upon this contrast in our text between the cursed man whose habitation is in the desert and the blessed man who has a habitation at the oasis of life. The prophet begins this contrast by showing that Judas' sin was so deep and so ingrained by nature. The sin was with a pen of iron, with a point of a diamond. And this led the prophet then to consider what the root of those spiritual Conditions were. He describes the states of all humanity. And we learn from this text, particularly as we compare the cursed man with the blessed man, that there are only two possible conditions. And there are only two possible environs in which men can live. There's no middle ground. There is no middle ground, either the desert place or the oasis, but no middle ground. And as the prophet makes this contrast between these two conditions and these two ways, these two environs, the focus particularly is upon the matter of faith. Well, I think this is such an appropriate text as we consider from our catechism what that true faith is and the issue is upon the object of faith so we look at the text from two perspectives we look first at the cursed man and the dearth in the desert and then the blessed man and the abundance at the oasis And the text will develop very simply. We're going to have, first of all, a factual description of the cursed man. A factual description of the blessed man. And then a figurative illustration for both. So we look first then at the cursed man. And this word curse is a word of action. Perhaps better translated here, the one being cursed is the man that trusts in man. This one who is under the sentence of wrath. This one that is under the sentence of condemnation. He is being cursed and that presupposes an agent of that cursing. Which of course would be the Lord himself. He's being cursed. And there are three characteristics that the prophet sets down for us here that describe this cursed man. He's the man that trusts in man. And the word trust here is a good word, or it's a bad word. Depending upon the object. What makes this a good word will be the object. We'll see that in due course. And what makes it a bad word is the object. And that certainly is the case before us here. It's one of the key words for faith in the Old Testament scripture. Emphasizing the confidence. Emphasizing the sense of security. The one that trusts is feeling safe. The one that trusts is feeling secure. He has the confidence. Unsuspecting of all of the issues that may be on the outside, there's a sense of safety. A sense of confidence, safety, and security of the one who is trusting. And there's the folly. Being cursed is the man. Old Testament, the Hebrew language, has various words that are translated man into our English Bibles. This first word for man speaks of man in his nobility. It speaks of man in his strength. It's a word that sometimes refers to a warrior hero. Man in his strength and man with all of his potential, as it were. A man here in this context that has convinced himself because he is who he is, that everything is okay. He's one that's bloated with self-confidence. He's one that is overwhelmed with the sense of personal worth and personal strength, that he has the resources. He's one that is filled with ambition. He looks at himself and he sees himself, as it were, as being noble, as being strong, as being able. To handle for himself all of the issues of life. But this man is cursed. Because he finds his confidence. He finds his security in man. And it's a different word for man here. This word for man speaks of man in his simplicity. It speaks of man in his insufficiency. It speaks of man in his weakness, in his inabilities. That one that is so low. So you see the irony. The irony here is one that thinks himself to be so great, to be so self-contained, to be one that is so noble in all of his estimations, feeling safe, feeling confident, feeling secure in what he believes, and what he's trusting, but what he trusts. Is so insignificant. Just man. Man in his weakness, man in his frailty, man who has no natural abilities. I've emphasized, and my guess is I'm going to say more than once in this message this morning. But it's a truth that I want us to get fixed on our heads and our hearts that the value of faith is determined by the object of faith. So here is a faith that was sincere. Here is a trust that was intense, was fervent. He was feeling confident and secure, but it was absolutely worthless because the object was absolutely worthless. It's the object of faith that determines the value of faith. And this one then that puts his confidence in that which is weak and insufficient and unable. brings to him the curse of God. Oh, everything may have looked okay on the outside. You remember, even children, you remember this illustration that Jesus uses of the wise man and the foolish man. Both of them building a house, building a structure. And as they built the structure, they both looked sound, they both looked good. But what was the difference? The fool built His house upon the sand. The wise man built his house upon the rock. Every external appearance was the same. But yet there was no foundation. There was no foundation for the house of the fool. And when the winds came and the storms buffeted against it, it could not stand. And so it is. So it is with any kind of trust, with any kind of confidence that is placed upon anything of self. Anything that is self-generated, anything that is self-conceived, anything that is self-tried is folly. So the first characteristic of this one that is being cursed is that he trusts in the wrong thing. But he relies upon the flesh of his arm, that's the second characteristic. The arm is the symbol of ability. The arm is the symbol of strength, the symbol of activity. And here is the arm of flesh. The word flesh in the Old Testament does not have the same connotations as it does in the New Testament, speaking of that wicked nature and so forth, but it does speak of just the human ability. says the arm of flesh. Not much to it. Inherent weakness. And here it speaks to us of all of the various activities of human effort. The symbol of activity and the agency through which that strength is exercised. And it speaks, I say, of all of the self-conceived and self-identified acts of man that would try somehow to please God the foolishness, and the inability of human effort, whatever that effort is. Oh, a man can devise all kinds of efforts, can't he? All kinds of efforts that will somehow convince himself that he is safe. Even religious notions and religious efforts. Oh, some have the idea that so long as they go to church, every time the doors are open, that that's going to please God. Some have the idea that if they just are members of a Reformed Church, particularly, man—you you can't be more orthodox than that. But that's not the issue. Not whatever you devise, not whatever you conceive to be your work that will somehow please God. You rely upon that. Your curse. Your curse. What a wretched condition! It's a hymn that says something like this, some line of the hymn, the arm of flesh will fail. You dare not trust your own. That's what the prophet's saying here. Don't trust your own devices. That's false faith. Oh, you may feel good about it. You may feel confident about it. You may feel secure about it. But it's a false trust. It's a false faith. And the third characteristic is that his heart departs From the Lord, whose heart departs from the Lord. Trust in man and trust in God are mutually exclusive. There's no middle ground. There's no mixtures. Here's this self-trust that precludes any trust in God. And it's the heart that departs from the Lord. The heart is the inner man. The heart in the Old Testament speaks of the mind of man. So here's one that is thinking incorrectly. The heart involves the emotions of man. Here's one that is feeling wrongly. The heart involves the will of man. Here's one that is choosing to do wrongly. It's the heart. It's the inner man, the inner impulses, the inner thinking, the inner desire. That departs from the Lord. Turns aside. Again, the. Old Testament has various words. That describe this particular activity. But the picture here is a path. Here's a straight path. That is clearly marked. But yet as the one that is. On that path. He's distracted by something. Off of that path. And he moves away from that path, distracted by something over here to the side. That's the word here. The Lord's made the the way clear, hasn't he? The gospel is no unattainable concept for us. It's not that we have to ascend so high or go so low. No, it's near us. Moses said, and Paul picks up on that same theme. Gospel's clear. The way of true faith is clear, because it's been revealed by God. But yet, there's stuff over here, there's attractions over here that cause this heart to move away from the Lord and try to find satisfaction someplace else. And that's what false faith does. False faith is distracted by something out here. Oh, that's the way God will be pleased. No. It's the heart that departs from the Lord. And how foolish is that? If you look down to verse 9, you see what this heart's like. Look at verse 9. This heart that causes the cursed man to depart from the Lord is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. This heart that leads man astray literally is a Jacob. The word deceitful there is Jacob's name. The heart of Jacob. Literally the heart is a heel. Remember why Jacob was named and then as Jacob lives his life he gives evidence deceptiveness. So this word becomes a picture of surpassing deceptiveness. A heart then that is sly. A heart that is insidious. A heart that is crooked. A heart that flatters self to trust in self. A heart that is malignant, impelling all kinds of detestable iniquity. An incurable heart. A heart that is profound Wrapped up in layers of sin and layers of lies after lies. So here's a man that is cursed because his heart causes him to depart from the Lord. And to follow that heart is to follow a liar. To follow that heart, departing from the Lord, is to follow that which is so crooked and perverse. The depths of depravity. Beyond comprehension. Who can know it? And we're so easily deceived. So easily taken in. Natural man is by his own heart. But it is to depart from the But God knows the heart. And God's not fooled, you see. God is not fooled. Man can very often satisfy, and he does satisfy himself. That's why the word trust is used here. He finds security. He finds confidence. He finds that inner peace even in his self-conceived ways of pleasing God. But God sees through it. And God has never been satisfied. God has never been and God never will be satisfied. With the arm of the flesh. He'll never be satisfied with external religion if that's all there is. God will never be satisfied with a purely reformed orthodox religion if that's all it is. If it's just trying to conform to God is looking at the heart and God discerns the difference between a heart that departs from him and the heart will see of the blessed man God knows. So that's what the cursed man is. It's what he is. In verse 6 we have a figurative description of what the cursed man is like like a heath in the desert shall not see when the good comes but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land and not inhabit it. man has no resources to meet the needs of his soul he's like a heath in the desert heath here is a like a dwarf juniper of some sort Stark, typically stunted growth in barren soil, barren sand. The absence in a place absence of that which would sustain, like a dwarf juniper, in the desert place where that which is normally necessary for sustaining of life and growth is absent. He'll not see when the good comes. He's blind. He'll not see when the good comes. There may be that breath of spring and here comes the cooling breeze to give some kind of relief in the desert. But so dark and so stark and so barren is this juniper that it doesn't enjoy, doesn't experience even those cooling breezes. What a terrible... What a terrible description of the sinner that is. You can put the beauty of the gospel. Those of you that are believers, is not Jesus precious? To a believer, Jesus is beautiful. To a believer, the way of righteousness and the way of God's word, the gospel is such a beautiful, beautiful thing. Why is it? Why is it that you can put this beautiful gospel in the face of sinners and they blow it off? Why is it you can put the gospel before those that are cursed? And they see not the beauty. They see not the wonder. They blow it off. The good can be put before them. The beauty of Christ can be expounded in their very eyes and ears. But they blow it off. They don't see. They cannot see when the good comes. And they're alone. They're going to inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land not inhabited, separated, alone the deceptive heart says that at least you follow that way, you're going to have a lot of company. You follow and you walk that broad way to destruction, you're going to at least be with your friends and your companions. You're going to be... But the cursed man ultimately is alone. And what a sober reality that is, that every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, Stands below before God. Judged, evaluated by that all knowing and that all seeing God that will not be taken in and deceived by your religious activities or your fleshly arm works. He knows the heart. Every man stands by himself in one sense, another sense. For a believer, we stand in Christ. And in Christ is where we have our acceptance, and we'll see that in just a moment. What a terrible picture. Catechism asks the question then, are all men going to be saved? No. No, only those who have received the mediator by true faith and those who follow a false faith, even though they may be confident and assured that their way is right, matters not. We live in a day. We hear a lot about faith, don't we? Do you have faith? Do you have faith? Do you have faith? And we talk about this faith organization and this faith. A lot of faith out there. A lot of faith out there. There's all these world religions that have faith. Be it Hindu, be it Buddhist, be it Muslim. But they all have faith. They all have faith. And they all think they're right. They all have that sense of confidence and assurance that they're right. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. It's not the issue. It's not the existence of faith. It's the object of faith that determines the value of faith. And true faith was far from the cursed man. But we have another picture of the blessed man. The blessed man and his abundance at the oasis. Say a word first concerning the word blessed itself. This also is an action word. This form occurs blessed throughout the Old Testament, but there are two different words. There are two different words that are used. Psalm 1 that we have already sung begins with that statement, blessed is the man, and then we have the description of that blessed man. That word is simply a descriptive word. It's describing the benefits. It's describing how fortunate, if you will, is the man that bears those particular qualifications. Just a descriptive word. But I say this word is a word of action. Of bestowing something, of transferring something from the subject to the object. It's passive here. Being blessed. Being blessed. So it's not a descriptive word. Rather it is a word that is describing one now that is under the sentence of blessing. The good that is being transferred to this one. So I will pronounce it blessed instead of blessed. I know sometimes in Psalm 1, I would read Psalm 1. Blessed is a descriptive word. But this is blessed. That one who from the outside, who from God, has received all of these benefits. The saved man. We see again, first of all, the facts about him. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord. He trusts. It's the same word. The word trust for the blessed man is exactly the same word for the cursed man. The cursed man trusts, the blessed man trusts. Same exact word. What's the difference? What's the difference between the blessing and the cursing? How many times have I said it already this morning? The difference is the object. The difference is the object. There's curse to that one that puts his trust in man but there's blessing to that one that puts his trust, that finds his confidence, that finds his security in the Lord. In our confession, catechism spoke then of that, not only the believing, but the full confidence. The full confidence. This is the word that expresses that confidence of faith the confidence, the feeling and the sense of security, the carelessness in the Lord. Blessed is the man that trusts the Lord, whose hope the Lord is. And the word hope here is from the same basic word as the word trust. It's just a noun form of the verb form. We won't go into all the ways that Hebrew can turn a verb into a noun, but it's the same word. It's the same word, same root. The idea whose security then. Could I translate it this way? Blessed is the man that finds his confidence, security in the Lord, and whose place of security, whose place of confidence, is the Lord. He's a man that trusts. He's the trusting man. Faith, saving faith, is not a one-off operation. Saving faith is not something that happened some time ago in my history, although it had a beginning. Saving faith has a beginning. But it continues. And it perseveres. And the characteristic of the blessed man is not only that he trusted the Lord but he is trusting he's in the process he's in the state of trusting the Lord also he finds in the Lord the place of security the place of safety the place of confidence without this kind of faith you can't please God But with this faith, you're put in this position of receiving the benefits. Saving faith. It's constant. I I love the statement, the way John puts this in his gospel as he defines really what faith is. Remember there in chapter 1? Speaks of those that are the sons of God. Those who are the sons, those that have believed, those who believed, and then those who are believing. How do I know I believed in the past if I'm believing now? Present faith is the evidence of that historic faith, you see. I know too many people, too many people. I've seen this over my entire ministry. That too many people are trying to recollect and try to reproduce whatever that moment was when they were converted, when they first believed. You know, did, did, did I do it enough? Was I sincere enough? Did I mean it enough? Oh, I believe, but did I really believe? And we play this game with ourselves. What's the difference between believing the gospel and really believing the gospel? Play that game. The reality of historic faith is... My present faith. And the text here makes it clear that in this present faith, in this saving faith, you never renounce the Lord, there's going to be a dependence upon him. Oh, faith may be weak at times. Faith may be weak at times. And I dare say there's not a person in this room, including the one that's behind this pulpit, that doesn't know what weak faith is. But thankfully, our salvation does not depend upon the level, the strength of our faith. Oh, I believe, help my unbelief, that faith can grow. And I want it to grow. It must grow. I trust that I can say I believe the gospel more today than I did when I was converted those years ago. And I trust that as the Lord gives me more time upon this planet, that as the time, I'll believe the gospel more. Doesn't change my state, but it changes that sense of confidence and peace and security. But it's the object. It's the object of faith. It's the object of faith. I know how much faith I need. I know how much faith I need to move a mountain. Christ says, You got faith the size of a mustard seed. You can move a mountain. I don't have that kind of faith. But the Bible never says how much faith you need to be saved. The Bible says believe this. You believe Christ. The power, the power and the authority and the sufficiency is in the object of faith. It's in Christ. And this is where our text takes us, where our catechism was dealing with. Was that, did you not see that in the catechism? How is truth-faith defined? And it brings us to all the benefits that there are in Jesus. Jesus. The folly of self-trust, described, now we have in our text the sensibility of saving faith. Trust Jehovah. You see how Lord is spelled there in verse 7? It's all capital. This is the name of God, Jehovah, Yahweh, however you want to pronounce it. But it's that name of God that speaks of his self-existence. It's that name of God that speaks of his absolute independence. It's that name of God that speaks of his saving covenant relationship with his people. He's the Savior. He's the Savior, God. He's the covenant initiating and the covenant keeping God. That's the object of faith. That's the object of our faith. This one that is supreme, this one that is merciful, this one that is majestic. Verses 12 and 13 give us some of the majestic guarantees. Here's the one that is the object of this true faith. The one that has a glorious high throne from the beginning. as the sanctuary. Power, glory, the throne is the symbol of a power and authority and glory. The highest majesty, dominion, dignity belong to him. What a contrast that is to the one that trusts man, man that is so weak, man that is so low, man that is so insignificant. Here is now the object of faith that is so high, that is so lifted up, that is so majestic, that is so glorious. That makes sense. There's the sensibility. There's the sensibility of true faith. Eternal excellence from the beginning. This whole way of salvation is not a divine afterthought. It's it's an eternal thought. Our God is who he is from the beginning, from eternity. Our sanctuary, our hiding place, our secure place, place of rest, place of reverence, place of bliss. That's God. The God that is faithfully keeping his covenant, who is the source of life. What a description we have. And again, the folly of considering who the Lord is and then departing. Departing from Him. Makes no sense. From a logical standpoint, it makes no sense. But such is the sin that is written upon the heart with the pen of iron ingrained, insensitive. the true faith in the exercise of true faith there's a sensitivity there's a sensitivity to who the Lord is and that expresses itself in the confidence of appropriation of the Lord look at verse 14 heal me O Lord and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved. There's the confidence to know that if God does it, it'll be done. If God heals, there is healing. If God saves, there is salvation. And that's our only hope. Where else can we turn? True faith knows there's no place else that we can turn other to the one true and living God that's revealed the way of life in His Son, the Mediator, between God and us. So, Lord, you heal me. I'll be healed. Lord, you save me. I'll be saved. Not relying upon my flesh. Not relying upon my own ingenuities. Not relying upon my own self. But, Lord, you do it, and it'll happen. None have ever called upon the Lord to be disappointed. None have ever come to Christ to be turned away. What does Jesus say? All the Father has given me will come to me, and all that come to me I will in no wise cast out. There has never been a man, a woman, a boy, or a girl in the history of this world that has come to Jesus to be rejected. To call us to be saved. Whosoever shall call us. I'm not making that up. I'm not making it up. You say that's too easy. Well... I'm not making it up. Lord, you save, I'll be saved. Psalmist says, your heart shall live that seek the Lord. So we seek him. We seek him. There's what the blessed man is. He's one that trusts, that finds his security and his confidence in the Lord only. But then we see the figurative description. What's this blessed man like? Can you see the similarities? In verse 8 to Psalm 1. That blessed man is there described. And now here is the man that's blessed. He'll he'll, he'll be like a tree planted by the waters. That spreads out her roots by the river. Shall not see when the heat comes. And her leaves shall be green. And shall not be careful. Not be... Anxious in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. So, what's this life now at the oasis? What a contrast between the desert solitude place and now this oasis. The blessed man flourishes, he's a tree, not a shrub not a little dwarf juniper here trying to survive for life in a desert place. No, he's a tree and he's flourishing. A tree that has been literally transplanted by the waters. A tree that has been transplanted by the waters. Why do you transplant something? Some of you are gardeners and like to Have your flowers and your whatevers. Sometimes you transplant something from here to there. Why do you transplant something? You don't transplant something from point A to point B to give it a better chance of dying. You transplant it to put it in a more advantageous place, a more obvious place. I've had various jobs in my life. I think last time I spoke here, I mentioned my job as a night watchman for a while. I had a job for a couple summers going through school where I worked for a landscaper. Probably the hardest work I've ever had. But there were occasions when my instructions were to transplant something from this place to that place. And we'd go back the next week, and for a whole week, knowing that I would not, did I do it right? And I was concerned. And I had a real care as to how that plant that I had transplanted was doing. It's a picture here. God has transplanted us as believers. God has transplanted us from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. And as the objects of this transplantation, we become then the objects of God's special care, of God's special provision, of God's special concern. What a blessing. This is part of the blessing. This is the blessed man that trusts the Lord. God transplants from that desert place, now into this abundant oasis, where there's nourishment, where there's growth, the roots go down and the branches go up. What provision? He flourishes. And then he's secure. He's secure. He shall not see when the heat comes. The cursed man did not see when the good came. And now the blessed man does not see when the heat comes. And now when the difficulties come. Not going to suffer. The shrub was deprived of no benefit from the most favorable of circumstances of weather. But here's this tree that does not suffer from the worst. Now trust in God obviously does not prevent the foul weather from coming but it does fortify us against it. There's strength, there's satisfaction. A place of security. And a place of productivity. Not going to cease from yielding fruit. The carelessness, I will not be careful in the year of drought, the idea of carelessness no anxiety in the place and route, but also I say there's going to be the productivity, yielding fruit, fruitfulness, the spiritual life of health, sign that Christ, the living root, now is working in us and we're producing fruit. But the contrast, the contrast, are all saved will all be saved by that mediator that was described in the previous Lord's days? No. Only those who by true faith receive Him. And the contrast is clear. Our text has made the contrast clear. You're either in the desert or you're in the oasis. There's no middle ground. There's no middle ground, there's no almost saving faith. No middle ground. You're either in Adam or in Christ. What a graphic illustration. What a graphic illustration Jeremiah has given to us of Lord's Day 7. In the following Lord's Days we'll be learning more and more about the content of this object of true faith. And may our hearts be blessed as we so consider. But the issue before us, the issue before us this morning, where are you? Where are you? Only two places spiritually you can be. You can be in the desert or you can be in the oasis. Where are you? If you're in the o- in the desert place, you could come to the oasis by coming to Jesus. Come unto me. Come unto me, Jesus said. And that coming to Jesus is receiving him by true faith. May God make it so for all of us. Amen. O Lord, how thankful we are for thy word that reveals to us so clearly what the path of righteousness is. By word that makes it so unmistakably, irrefutably clear how it is to be saved. So Lord, we pray that Thou who knows the hearts of all Thou does know those who are departing those who are coming Lord, cause thy spirit to apply thy word to hearts according to need. But how thankful we are that there is blessing. There is blessing that comes from God himself to those who trust him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.